again. So you, you know that we have uh, a state of very interesting talks coming up. So I'm just going to say one or two words by way of introduction, <coughs> and then turn things over to Michael, uh, who will moderate the first panel. Um, I just wanted to say, really mention two words, uh, two qualities that I think are, are often in the air whenever the topic of conservatism arises. I mean, gloominess <laughs> and truth. Now, first about the gloominess. Um, I've recently, and only recently, begun keeping a folder marked conservative gloominess. And I, I put into this folder uh, articles uh, uh, telling me that it's foreordained that Hillary Clinton will be the next occupant of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and that sort of thing. Um, it's full of animadversions uh, by various hands, dire prognostications about this, that, and the other thing about US, Europe, um, everything that's going wrong with the world. Now what, what's odd, or at least I think uncharacteristic about these bulletins from the US, is less their substance than their tone and what we might call their existential orientation. Because while it's true that from time immemorial, conservatives have delighted in writing books titles like Leviathan, The Decline of the West, The Wasteland, or to take a more recent example, Slouching Toward Gomorrah, <laughs> I think that, that doesn't tell the whole story. I, I, I think I'm right, Bob will correct me, I, I know if I'm wrong, that, that he once delivered himself of a withering account of some aspect of our society, and a member of the audience the paper was, and his response was that uh, he would call his next paper uh, Little Mary Sunshine, to which a fellow panelist said, yeah, Little Mary Sunshine gets skin cancer. <laughs> well, in a way, that's, that's all in a day's work for a conservative, but I've noticed a troubling disruption of late. I think that by habit and con constitution, conservatives tend to be, as a species, less gloomy than, what should we call them, liberals are not large, the people that are often called liberals are really illiberals, and uh, that is to say opposed to freedom and all its works. Indeed, I think when you think about this opposition, uh, when you think about the word liberal, Russell Kirk, uh, who will be part of our deliberations today, comes closer to the truth when he said that he was a conservative because he was a liberal. Now that seeming paradox is one that we might want to plumb further in our discussion today, but for now just let me settle on the designation leftist, and precise though it is, that's a more proper word, it's not the right word exactly, but it's a more proper word, I think, to describe whatever it is that's the opposite of conservative. And although there are plenty of exceptions, the race of man, after all, is large and varied, but if you cast your mind over your acquaintanceship and over the evidence of history, I think you will agree that, by and large, conservatives are less gloomy than leftists. Conservatives also tend to enjoy a more active and, and enabling humor and for similar reasons. Now, Mill famously said that conservatives were the stupid party. Really, I think we should call them the cheerful party. Why is that? Uh, Walter Badgett once observed that the essence of Toryism is enjoyment. What he meant, I think, was summed up by the author of Genesis, when that sage observed that God made the world and saw that it was good. Conservatives differ from leftists in many ways, but one important way quota of cheerfulness and humor they employ. Not that 
your assessment of their fellows is more sanguine than that uh, espoused by leftists. On the contrary, conservatives tend to be cheerful precisely because they do not regard imperfection as a personal moral affront. It requires their immediate and unrelenting rage to recognize it. They are realistic about mankind's susceptibility to improvement, which means they're skeptical about it. And they are suspicious of utopian schemes as they are
and social collectivism on the one hand, and moral anarchy on the other. It cannot win, but it can make us all losers. I think that's uh, an important point to bear in mind. The other side's not going to win. They, the, they do not have any of the ideas. We have the ideas, but uh, if, we let, if we let them succeed in implementing these ideas, they can make us all uh, losers. I just want to point uh, finally to something about uh, Irving's few sentences they're somber, but they're not gloomy. They're written with a kind of uh, commendable tonic force. It's a call to arms. And I think that's um, partly what, uh, what we need to do is to arouse ourselves, as, as Hume put it in a different context, from our dogmatic slumbers and uh, realize that this is not the time for gloominess, but on the contrary, a time for action. And with that, I'll thank you again. Thanks. And we've got three papers this morning. If you could keep the, keep the papers to 15 at most, 20 minutes, so we've got plenty of time for discussion. Please carry on, please, just go away. Okay, thank you. Um, well, I, I, I was going to read as much of tonight's paper as can be contained in 25 minutes, but, I, but, but instead I'll read as much of it as can be contained in uh, 20 minutes. Um, conservatism in general, conservative council is a dominant opinion conservative starting point for serious inquiry. In particular, a social or traditionalist conservatism refrained by extraordinary lifelong labors of Russell Kirk and on display in the fascinating new collection of his essays, The Essential Works of Kirk, urges the dominant opinion, he believes too, dominant opinion in the United States today, at least among the intellectual class, is progressive opinion. And according to progressive opinion, contemporary conservatism is in crisis. And certainly, conservatism faces many challenges. It's come to be associated in the public mind, at least, with naive efforts to promote democracy abroad by force of arms. It must deal with serious disagreement within its ranks about the justice of and government role in abortion, embryonic stem cell research, same-sex marriage, and euthanasia. And it confronts a society and popular culture that continues to drift leftward. Equitable society has steadily done since more, more or less the age of Locke, and celebrating not only the rights of the individual against the state, with of course health exceptions for seatbelt smoking and trans fat, but also the authority of the individual against tradition, community, and family. Yet, the pro yet progressives' current diagnosis, or rather denunciation, demonstrates an illiberal failure comprehend the moral intentions and structural features of American conservatism. The progressive denunciation also obscures conservatism's fundamental convictions and long-term prospects. Uh, in the paper I prepared, uh, I now go, uh, I treat two essays that were published in the New Republic over the summer, early in the summer. One by Sam Tannenhaus, uh, editor of the Sunday New York Book, Sunday New York Times Book Review, and one by uh, Alan Wolf. Skip over the uh, Tenant House section of this paper and go straight to uh, Wolf's critique of, of contemporary conservatism. His critique of conservative contemporary conservatism focuses on uh, the work of Russell Kirk. It was uh, uh, Wolf's uh, Wolf's long, angry, vitriolic essay was uh, an effort to show that uh, there is nothing worthwhile that can be learned from the thinking of. <coughs> in his essay is called Contempt. 
Virginia dissent philosopher named Harold Wolf argued that conservatism is, I quote here, provincial, resentful, bigoted. Indeed, Wolf continued, if you collected all the grumblings in a small town drugstore by men convinced that somehow the world had passed them by, and then added a few literary and historical references, you would have the essential Russell Kirk. All right, where to begin, of course. Set aside the gratuitous expression of contempt for small town America, for on its face, bizarre description of Kirk. He traveled widely through Britain and Europe and the United States and wrote extensively about his travels. Although he never settled on a campus as a tenured professor, he earned a PhD as a young man, lectured and taught at virtually of colleges and universities throughout his life, and collected 12 honorary doctorates. He was the author of some 30 books, mostly learned, but also including popular works of fiction, and in addition, wrote prolifically for newspapers and magazines. And Kirk's collected writings extend far and wide. They explore, for example, the fundamental tenets of conservatism and liberalism, the religious foundations of Western civilization and the principles of orders of structure, dependence of politics on the moral imagination, the dangers to modern man of ideology, the paramount importance of liberal education, and, of course, the origin and development of conservative thought in America. Well, Alan Wolf lodges three large criticisms against the thinking of Russell Kirk. The first is that Kirk's critique of ideology is peculiar and self-serving because it holds that only liberals can be ideological. To make this criticism stick, though, Wolf has to labor to obscure Kirk's conception of ideology and of conservatism. Let me explain. It's generally accepted that since the 19th century, ideology has been understood to refer to a comprehensive system of ideas for organizing moral and political life, a comprehensive system that claims the authority of reason and objective analysis, but in reality is rooted in class interest, prejudice. No doubt that in defining ideology as a form of, quote, political fanaticism, close quote, that is committed to, quote again, the belief that this world of ours may be converted into the terrestrial paradise through the operation of positive law and positive planning. In defining ideology in this way, Kirk gives the definition of virtue and twist. But he certainly didn't mean that no person or party to the right of center could trade ideology. Rather, his argument was that Edmund Burke represented the epitome of the conservative mind. In the French Revolutionary's attempts to radically reorganize political life in accordance with novel theories about man and society, Burke saw a destructive ambition. Against it, as you all know, he championed prudence, a form of reasoning grounded in history, tradition, and experience, relying not on abstract patterns and general rules, but on conscientious judgment. To the extent that a conservative is one, one who makes prudence, and not some system of ideas that guides a politics, it is reasonable to say, with Kirk, that conservative politics and ideological politics are opposite. It is also reasonable to acknowledge that many on the right, departing from conservative principles, fall prey to ideology. One can, of course, debate whether Kirk was correct to identify the essence of conservatism with Burke, but in doing so, and the critique of ideology that flows from it are, contrary to Wolf, more than respectable. 
Well, second, large criticism of Kirk and through Kirk of conservatism in general. Wolf accuses Kirk of propounding a trite and incoherent defense of religion. And by the way, as I unfold this, some of you may recognize a, uh, an, an argumentative tactic uh, that was championed by Stanley Fish um, in, uh, in various forums, uh, including in First Things. Wolf, uh, in a debate in First Things, Wolf argues as follows. Since Kirk believed that the practice of religion is critical to social order, therefore citizen civilization is obliged, he argues, to identify the one true religion, Judaism, Catholicism, evangelical Protestantism, or some form of American civil religion, and defend it to the hilt. Having failed to do that, argues Wolf, Kirk is left with nothing but here, a denunciation of everything that we modern people do without any convincing account of how anything could be done differently. In proceeding this way, Wolf argues as if the only legitimate conservative critique of contemporary religious practice and opinion and secular practice and opinion is a radical one. If conservatives are serious and thoughtful about their religious faith, then, Wolf insists, they must be unflinching in their devotion to it, and moreover, unflinching devotion requires them to demand the imposition of their faith on the public square. But of course, that is to impute to conservatives a typical progressive thoughtlessness about conservatism and religion. Faith can coexist with doubt, reverence for the variety of teachings and moral disciplines stemming from biblical religion are consistent both with maintaining a critical standard toward biblical faith and with a lifelong quest to understand God's order and its implications for politics. Moreover, religious belief itself may counsel against imposing religion in the public square. Contrary to Wolf, it is neither cliche nor contradictory for Kirk to urge readers to return to the sources of biblical faith while declining to undertake a full-scale defense of any particular Christian denomination. What Wolf objects to in Kirk's writings on religion, and what Wolf attempts to recast as vice, are qualities, officially at least, and rightly celebrated by liberals, moderation and tolerance, openness to mystery and doubt, and appreciation of the claims of competing sects, denominations, schools, and traditions. Wolf's third large criticism of Kirk. Wolf condemns Kirk for his isolation of the American founders. Kirk's views on religion and politics should have compelled them, argues Alan Wolf, to revile the founders, because the founders took their bearings from John Locke and the liberal tradition. Surely, Wolf contends, the Constitution has repudiated the political role of religion by separating church and state, is responsible for the very decline of religious faith Russell Kirk lament. But to Wolf's disgust, Kirk stands by the Constitution as well as by the founders. Kirk's failure to denounce the Constitution is particularly egregious in Wolf's eyes, given that, to quote Wolf here, Kirk's hero Burke insisted that order required an established church. Instead of faulting the founders for failing to establish a Kirk, sorry, for failing to establish a church, Kirk argues that the Constitution, quote, was to be a practical instrument of government, not a work of political religious dogma. 
first embrace of the Constitution and its commitment to separating church and state. In other words, in Russell Kirk's embrace of American constitutional democracy, Alan Wolf discovers, quote, dishonest thinking at its most repellent. Dishonest thinking at its most repellent. To convict Kirk of repellent dishonesty, however, Wolf has to obscure the historical record and advance a highly defective argument. He appears to be unaware, this Alan Wolf that is, of the scholarship over the last several decades, including the writings, among others, of John Donne and Charles Taylor, exploring the Christian framework of thought influencing Locke's writings on morals and politics. Nor does Wolf appreciate the voluminous scholarly literature on the Christian dimension of early American social and political thought. Wolf may be right that Kirk fails to recognize the extent to which the Constitution itself brought into existence a way of life that elevated liberty over piety, and so gradually paved the way for the liberal decadence that Kirk did deplore. Nevertheless, contrary to Wolf, Kirk is on solid ground in arguing that the Constitution is a document that aims to protect the religious faith while recognizing liberty and democracy. Indeed, while there are familiar secular reasons for separating church and state, the separation also derives support from Christian thinking about how best to protect religion. As legal historian Marshall Wolf Powell convincingly argued more than 30 years ago in the Garden in the Wilderness. Furthermore, it's wrong to argue that since Burke defended an established church, Kirk was obliged to repudiate the founders because they rejected an established church. Admiration for an author does not require one to follow him slavishly in every respect. In fact, and obviously, nothing could be less Burkean, given the importance Burke attached to the role of custom, tradition, and local context in applying principle to concrete circumstances. And finally, a rhetorical question for Wolf. Does he think it was, I quote again, dishonest thinking and it at its most repellent, close quote? For George Washington, who presided over the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787, and who undoubtedly conceived of the Constitution as, quote, a practical instrument of government, close quote, who have famously declared in 1796 in his farewell address that, quote, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. If Washington can consistently hold that religion is a critical support of the constitutional order that separates church and state, and like Madison, Burke, and Tocqueville, he can, why can't Kirk also do, do so without incurring the wrath of Alan Wolfe? In conclusion, Wolfe rebukes Kirk for asserting that in the liberal imagination, Lionel Trilling's great 1950 work, for asserting that Trilling found, quote, the liberal imagination nearly bankrupt. To which Wolf replies, quote, oh really? What Trilling actually wrote was that liberalism is not only the dominant, but the sole intellectual tradition in the United States. And Trilling did write those lines. This would be a devastating reply to Kirk if the liberal intellectual tradition to which Trilling does refer, were synonymous with the liberal imagination, which it is not. Moreover, the major point of Trilling's preface, from which Wolf quotes, was, much as Russell Kirk wrote, that liberalism, driven by the demands for ever greater individual freedom and greater rational control of human affairs, and I'm quote, 
conservative impulse, like in his day, conservative impulses were not expressing themselves in ideas, but rather, quote, in actions or irritable mental gestures which seek to resemble ideas. Wolf concludes, a better description of Russell Kirk and his view of the world could not have been written. Never mind that Schilling published the liberal imagination, not only before the renewal of the conserv American conservative movement that Kirk led, but before Kirk had published his first book. More important, to enlist Krilling in such a denunciation was either a gross misunderstanding or willful disregard of Krilling's own intention. What was Krilling's intention in 1960s? It was to wake up sleepy and dogmatic liberals by impressing upon them the need to study conservative thought. Writing at a time which, unlike our own, lacked a vibrant conservative intellectual tradition, Krilling lamented that, quote, it is not conducive to the real strength of liberalism that it should occupy the intellectual field alone. Then, invoking John Stuart Mill, who insisted on the profound depth of the conservative mind of Daniel Taylor Coleridge, Krilling contended that the encounter with conservative thought, I quote again, would force liberals to examine their position for its weaknesses and complacencies. Indeed, Krilling goes on, a criticism which has at heart the interests of liberalism might find its most useful work not in confirming liberalism in a sense of <coughs> rightness, but rather in putting under some degree of pressure the liberal ideals and assumptions of the present time. It follows that in the encounter with conservative thought, not, I should say, with conservative policy positions or electoral politics or polemics and partisanship are to be expected, but in the encounter with conservative thought, liberalism interests are served by a sympathetic reading of those features, priorities, and perspectives that distinguish the conservative mind. So, for the benefit of liberals, what might a liberal who takes to heart the interests of liberalism say nothing of conservatives who wish to renew their appreciation <coughs> of the spirit of conservatism? What might all those people learn from Russell Kirk? One could do worse than to start with Kirk's own self-description, found in the title of his autobiographical Confessions of a Bohemian Tory, which is from 1983. Kirk writes, the Tory, according to Samuel Johnson, is a man attached to orthodoxy in church and state. A Bohemian is a wandering and often impecunious man of letters or art, indifferent to the demands of wigwam fad and foibles. Such a one has your servant been. Tory and Bohemian go not ill together. It's quite possible to abide by the norms of civilized existence, what Mr. T.S. Eliot calls, quote, the permanent things, close quote, and yet to set at defiance the soft security and sham conventionalities of 20th century sociability. To see through contemporary practice and find not anarchy or nihilism, but venerable traditions and permanent standards of civilized existence is a hallmark of Kirk's conservatism. Despite the great gap he discerned between how the majority of Americans live and how we ought to live, Kirk had modest expectations concerning social and political reform. For the familiar rate reason, the change always carries, carries a considerable risk of making things worse. And, crucially, as Roger um, referred to, whatever its other faults, America liberty, which was a precondition for human dignity and so a paramount good and a priority to conserve. This 
the exception of his unflinching critique of communism. There is next to no discussion, interestingly, of contemporary policy or electoral politics in the 600 pages of eclectic and elegantly woven essays that constitute the essential Russell Kirk. The collection gives the lie to the impression, um, refer back to a piece of paper that I didn't leave, an uh, impression that, however, Sam Tannenhaus uh, fostered in his contributions to the New Republic, that modern American conservatism can hardly see beyond the confrontation with communism, and now the confrontation with Islamic extremism. At the same time, Kirk's ideas focus on ideas and opinions cannot be reduced, as Alan Wolfsnipe <coughs> to the lack of a, quote, convincing account of how anything could be done differently, close quote. <coughs> Wolf's suppressed assumption is, is that in the face of sweeping social and political criticism, the only thing worth doing, the only things worth doing differently are political in the narrow sense. Kirk rejected that assumption. Instead, he believed his most urgent task consisted in educating hearts and minds for the recovery and renewal of neglected sources of wisdom. This education is what liberals and conservatives too can gain from uh, reading and rereading of Kirk. <coughs> this education consists in first in appreciating that liberty and tradition are not antipathies but mutually dependent goods. It involves understanding that our liberty under law is nourished not by one, but by three great traditions, the biblical, the classical, Greek and Roman, and the tradition of modern constitutionalism, St. Locke, Montesquieu, and Burke, and that notwithstanding the tensions among them, the defense of our freedom requires study of all three and the preservation of what is best in each. Kirk's education directs attention especially to literature, which enlarges our imagination and fosters an appreciation of the mystery, diversity, and complexity of human affairs. In particular, Kirk calls attention to the high modernism epitomized by the work of T.S. Eliot, which finds in the maladies of modernity an opportunity to reclaim forgotten teachings about determinism. Kirk's education places liberal education at the heart of civic education in current forms here and not the other way around. Liberal education is at the heart of civic education, and not the other way around, because knowledge of literature, history, philosophy, religion, and science prepare students for freedom by opening their eyes, invigorating their hearts, and furnishing and refining their minds. And finally, <coughs> Kirk's education extols moderation, which is prior to and presupposed by prudence. <coughs> moderation is a virtue that, among many other things, controls parts and passions, and allows us to recognize and give their proper due to the variety of goods we confront, not least among the goods that moderation enables us to balance are the progressive and conservative strands in the American political tradition. Needless to say, Kirk made his mistakes, his writings portrayed blind spots. He does not very much wrestle with the entanglement of 19th century American conservatism, which he did so much to recover, with slavery, does not often give progress its due, and at times he does underestimate how the individual liberty that he wished to conserve erodes the very sentiment, tradition, and principles that provide, in his judgment, liberty's greatest tradition and liberty's greatest justification and support. These are real problems. Critics and friends should confront them. 
directly, and yet, quoting again Trilling, criticism which has at heart the interests of liberalism cannot begin and end with first errors, much less wildly exaggerate his errors and invent vices and sins of which he is not guilty. To conclude, Kirk's defense of the permanent things merits a defense in no small measure because of the role the permanent things play in sustaining liberty. I'll stop there. Thank you, Dan. We've now got half an hour or so for discussion. Who would like to start us off? Well, let me uh, just say a couple of words, not so much about <coughs> Kirk, uh, whose work I greatly admire, and who you quite rightly point out to talk about T.S. Eliot, but I'd like to talk about Wolf, the critic in this, uh, in this analysis, because in many ways, the criticism, I think, suggests something about contemporary liberalism. First of all, Wolf is a professor at Boston College of uh, Social Institutions and Religion, and it's interesting because he has an antipathy, a basic antipathy to religion of any kind. Uh, yet he holds this chair at, at Boston College. He did an empirical study of America's views, coming to the conclusion that the single and overarching con uh, concern of Americans was tolerance. But if you look at the work itself, what he means by tolerance is a lack of discrimination, mm. which is, in, in a sense, a very, a very interesting, because his point is that Americans are far more willing to accept a variety of different views. But if you look deeply into what the, what the evidence suggests, it suggests that Americans, are, are from his point of view, are willing to accept almost anything. It's a kind of relativism. And that he sees as a value, a real value in American society. The second point is after doing that book, which is an empirical study filled with methodological errors, I might add, uh, he, he, he then does another book that deals with the question of morality. Now his conclusion after doing the second book on morality is that each individual should decide for himself what is moral. There are no transcending qualities associated with morality. Morality should be should involve individual judgments, kind of existentialist analysis. Uh, it is an erroneous idea, it seems to me, because then almost anything applies. One of the interesting things that comes out of it, and you see this in American schools by and large, is that clitoridectomies cannot be criticized as having a, a, a terrible uh, effect on women. It's, after all, a cultural phenomenon that we should not be in a position of criticizing. And that is the sort of thing that emerges, this kind of soft tolerance of almost anything and unwillingness to discriminate. So I, again, I think that the, uh, you've pointed out, I think very appropriately, not only the difference between Wolf and, uh, and Kirk, but the difference between those who admire and adhere to permanent things and those people who accept a kind of relativist worldview. Yeah, and
just a quick comment. <coughs> what Rawls is obviously against is not religion, he's against Christianity. <laughs> and it is one of the curious features of secularism for at least 100 years, that in fact, has all on Christianity, has always been an attack on religion as a whole. It's peculiarly vulnerable these days for reasons that were indicated, <coughs> because while Christianity is bad because it's not empirically based and so on, uh, other religions are cultures, and therefore they more or less have escaped until recent times from this kind of denunciation. Uh, the situation has just changed in the last 10 years, of course, because Islam is now uh, juxtaposed against Christianity in terms of a more general concept of fundamentalism as being two crazy uh, doctrines that are um, opposed to science and to any sort of common sense. So um, I will, I'm very sensitive to, to the questions whether people are talking in this area when they say religion, are they really talking about Christianity? Or perhaps Judaism? May I um, make one last quick point again? The word faith seems to me an interesting one because I take it that in Christian terms, faith is epistemologically distinct from knowledge. That is, it is a profound conviction, no doubt derived from uh, beliefs about Jesus and their tradition, but which does not claim to be something one can be certain of. Um, Islam, to describe Islam as a faith in this sense is, I think, probably wrong, is it not? I don't think other religions make this kind of epistemological sort of distinction. And therefore, I quiver slightly in this whole field in various ways that when people talk about faith schools, I think this is a category mistake. So I'd like to say first a word further about the Wolf's thesis, and thank you for your contribution, and thank you for responding to it in intellectual terms. I think that's, that's very helpful. As you probably know, and as many of you here may also know, uh, the when Wolf's uh, essay appeared, it generated a, a little storm on the, uh, on the internet, particularly at National Review Online, where a number of offended conservatives, I think, quite properly responded to what is not so much been brought out here, namely the left is represented by Wolf 
that there's nothing to be gleaned from dialogue from such a discredited figure. So the urge is to discredit rather than to refute. The, uh, the, the original um, version of this uh, paper was was much angrier and did, did address the uh, upcoming tax, but that was taken in book. Um, alas, I think there's a very simple answer to your, to your, to your question. Um, Wolf Thank you. 
in a way that they hadn't been by the 15, early 1580s. And in a way, the American Constitution, which is obviously a marvelous thing, is, is a groundswell that reflects not simply um, developments within, within America, but also developments within Protestantism in the 18th century. That's my point. And I think taking up a number of points around the room, the unfortunate thing about Islam is that although Islam is also varied and heterodox uh, religion, much more so than its protagonists might make out, it has had far less of a capacity to engender toleration or respect for other religions than Protestantism certainly has. And I think that itself is an issue of comparative religious realism, which is interesting to comment on. And, and again, it's an issue that liberals won't talk about because they do not like that. They are so anti-religion, they don't like making distinctions between religions, which I think builds up to exactly your point about the degree of uh, the extraordinary idea that
again about how to counteract all this attitude. Um, and finally, one, one small comment. Um, right at the beginning of your paper, Peter, you um, made a comment which, which made me prick up my ears, and I, I wonder if you could explain it a little more. You say that conservatism has come to be associated in the public mind with naive efforts to promote democracy abroad by force of arms. Um, I, I'm wondering quite what lies behind that, that comment and, and whether you might elaborate on it. Well, uh, that was my um, gentle and diplomatic uh, reference to the Bush administration's uh, adventures in Iraq. And uh, ever since
pick up on um, your criticisms of Lord Cumming and Jones and studies that there, there are some interesting developments occurring within secularism. Obviously, there's a, a fairly wide range of opinions to be called secular. Uh, secularism. Um, uh, there's obviously the American system of the separation of church and state, which enables churches to flourish. But then uh, you often hear of Americans and Europeans talk about um, Kamalism as being um, uh, secularism, but in fact it is the rigid control of the church or the mosque by the state. The Ministry of Religious Affairs actually sends out the sermon, which has <laughs> compulsory to be read out in the mosque by the uh, on Friday. And that, and that, and other policies, for example, the Ministry of Religious Affairs is extremely reluctant to grant permits to seminar, Christian seminaries or churches. Uh, and, and these kind of uh, policies follow, uh, are, are from a grave suspicion of religion as dangerous for social order, liable to be divisive, cause conflict, and so on. Now, exactly those kind of arguments are now being ambitious liberals, and they would include Leonard Woolwich, but also people like Hugh Batten and others, mm -hmm. uh, argue that it is completely Ill illegitimate for Christians, for example, uh, to, um, to advance arguments on public policy that are, so to speak, derived from their Christianity, from their, their reusing arguments that were not open to criticism and rational debate by other people. Well, quite apart from the great difficulty of deciding which comes first, you know, the chicken or the egg, I mean, is a Catholic opposed to abortion because he's a Catholic, or does he become a Catholic because he's opposed to abortion? Or maybe, as in the case of Ronald Reagan, um, his uh, opposition to, um, to abortion is founded on the very fact that he, he, he's agnostic about the status of the fetus and therefore thinks, well, best be on the safe side and, and uh, let, let, it, let the, the creature develop into a human being. Uh, so uh, you, you've got that as a problem, and um, I think increasingly we are going to see liberals like this, uh, as, as Ken said as well, I think, move towards a definition of secularism which, which is intended to put Christians and put other religious believers at a disadvantage in public debate. So what they're saying is fundamentally not legitimate. And that's all very, to some extent, happening with the Catholic perspective of the social mind, particularly in certain respects. The other thing I would say is you have exactly the opposite development occurring within Protestant Christianity. What's really interesting to me is the, the degree to which Methodism and um, evangelical Protestantism is proving to be capable of virtually infinite self-renewal. Mm -hmm. This is true, obviously, within Latin America. We're seeing the advance of Protestantism there. It's a huge Wesleyan revolution in a way. And, um, and it's happened within Latino communities in the United States. <coughs> and you can find evangelical Protestants uh, communities in, uh, in Asia. They tend to be associated with high-earning, most advanced sections of society in Eastern Europe and so on. And, so, and the Catholic Church is responding, obviously, to this with, by developing its own, in a sense, evangelical uh, character. It's not personally my case, but, <laughs> but you know, there are obviously many people who, who feel that that, 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 that that emotional side of religion is something they need. And that, it seems to me, is going to create a real clash because that's exactly the kind of religion which, uh, as we see with the criticism of the Christian right, that these um, American secularists hate most profoundly. Um, and, and, and yet, it's going to come at them from people whom they otherwise esteem because they are, in one sense or another, a minority. Ken? Yeah. Ken, uh, 
demonstrating that it is out of bounds to make um, religiously inspired arguments in the public sphere. In other words, they, they want to show as proof of proofs of liberal reason that this is out of bounds. N never mind that we live in a free society. They want to they want to reduce from some assert here equally by all by no reasonable reason that such arguments tainted by religion.
state will not establish a religion in the United States. <coughs> and one of the reasons for that was that there were four states that had established religion, and they, and they didn't want the federal government to override it with its own established religion. Uh, since then, the Supreme Court and, and uh, the grip of the ACLU and that branch of American uh, public philosophy has turned the Establishment Clause into a ban on almost any religious expression in, public, in the public sphere. Uh, the, uh, Ted Olson points out that at the same time the Supreme Court has said that students in a high school may not pray before a game that nobody be hurt. They've, uh, that's banned by the establishment clause. They've also said that nude dancing has expressive value and therefore requires considerable protections from the First Amendment. <laughs> and Ted suggested that students should dance naked before the game. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think there is, I don't think there is a, a terribly close relationship between conservatism and, and religion. Uh, but uh, I, I don't think it's, it's possible, possible to take almost any stance towards religion and be a conservative. I don't think it's required to be religious. And the only conservative response to what's going on now, I would suppose, is simply to repel attacks on religion as being out of place in the public discourse, which means trying to change the Supreme Court. Sure. Just following up on the point that uh, you just made, early on in the history of National Review, Max Eastman, who was, I guess, a militant atheist or agnostic, uh, dissociated himself from National Review because he thought it had too much of a Catholic or Christian tendency. And, and Buckley's, Abner Buckley's response to that was that, yes, a conservative need not be a man of faith, but a conservative should not, in Buckley's view, be hostile to religion.
did that, who uh, is, is intent large enough to include. Well, then Amici is supposed to necessarily have any objection to this transaction. But he does. He, he, he doesn't. He thinks it's a bad thing. Who's yeah, well, who that's 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 the Secondly, I, I was I was hoping to come up with some 
reasons for optimism, reasons to um, get away from uh, this overarching gloominess. Um, and what I found was, even as I was writing the paper about the inability of um, the executive to uh, exercise political authority, uh, a judge here in Manhattan, Judge uh, Victor Morero, uh, rendered a decision even as I was writing the paper, which basically held that the FBI, um, the FBI's collection of information, intelligence information, uh, would be necessary in order to assemble databases so that you can try to uh, match up information and uh, derive terrorist patterns. That the manner in which that intelligence collection takes place violates the Constitution. Um, seemingly in, uh, in a pretty vast departure from uh, decades of settled law. Two days ago, uh, a judge in Oregon held that the Patriot Act is unconstitutional uh, to the extent that it modified the now famous <coughs> Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, which has been the uh, subject of a pretty vigorous argument in our country for the last uh, two years. Um, basically, the judge, in making that ruling, uh, rejected not only a very clear act of Congress, which was enacted right after 9-11 in, in order to prevent a repeat of 9-11, uh, namely the procedural uh, barrier that we had prior to 9-11, which prevented our intelligence agents from sharing information with our criminal investigators and prosecutors. Uh, the judge not only rejected that act of Congress, uh, but in fact, the judge rejected other judges. Um, one of the things that the um, FISA law did in 1978, uh, it, was a, it was a major departure from, uh, from prior procedure. It used to be that the executive branch on its own could determine who to eavesdrop on, who to monitor, uh, when the essence of the investigation was about national security protection from protection against uh, foreign threats. Um, the introduction of FISA in 1978 um, was this revolutionary idea that we should put courts into that process so that uh, the President of the United States, the only uh, official who's actually elected by uh, all of the people of the United States, primarily uh, for the purpose of protecting the country from outside attacks, uh, that official now has to go to get permission from a federal judge uh, before determining who can be monitored uh, for purposes of protecting the country. Um, judge Aiken's ruling not only rejected what Congress said in the Patriot Act, uh, but also rejected what the FISA court had said about FISA. And that's interesting because um, in order to justify this innovation of putting the judiciary in the process of intelligence collection, um, what, what the FISA Act did was create this FISA court to answer the objection that courts are institutionally incompetent to be involved in intelligence collection, there being nothing uh, in the way of expertise, but nothing about being a lawyer would, would obviously make one uh, expert in foreign intelligence collection. Uh, to answer that objection, the idea was to create this FISA court where 
all of the classified information issues that come up in intelligence collection would come into one court, and thereby the court would develop an institutional expertise in this area. And that was the one and only, really, justification for creating the FISA court, because it was a departure from a lot of prior law that said that courts are not competent in this area. So the interesting thing about the Oregon judge's decision is she's not a FISA court judge. She's just a district judge. And she rejects not only the act of Congress, but in fact a holding of the FISA court that the collection that she says offends the Fourth Amendment, I think, does not offend the Fourth Amendment. The moral of the story being that judges today not only don't follow statutes, they don't even follow other judges. Next month, or in the next term, the Supreme Court is about to hear a case called Boumediene. This is a case that involves unlawful enemy combatants captured in wartime. And what the court will be determining is whether alien enemy combatants who are held outside the United States and whose only connection to our country is to wage war against our country, whether they have rights under the federal constitution, including habeas corpus rights. That, I think, is a very alarming development for a couple of reasons. Number one, the court initially declined to take the case last year and then changed its mind on the last day of the term, which is highly unusual and at least indicative of the possibility that a consensus has developed. I think most educated observers think a consensus for the proposition that alien enemy combatants actually do have constitutional rights, at least habeas rights. And secondly, alarming because following 9-11, when we actually changed our way of dealing with terrorism, Congress finally did what I think it should have done much earlier, which is try to strike a balance between what we need to do to protect our country and conduct warfare and what rights we must accord to terrorists who we are fighting against in order to make sure that the proceedings against them have a modicum of due process that we can hold our heads up about. And Congress, I think, painstakingly drew that line and actually came up with a process where, following tradition, enemy combatants who were captured in wartime could be detained and some of them who had committed war crimes could be tried in military commissions. The military process would go forward and then at the end of it, for the first time in the history of the United States, the enemy would actually have systematic access to the courts of the United States, namely the District of Columbia Circuit. And notwithstanding what you read in the New York Times and the Washington Post, that actually will almost certainly be a very vigorous legal proceeding. The Times repeatedly says that the only thing the combatants will be able to raise is whether the military, in detaining them and in trying them, conducted proceedings that were consistent with the military regulations. In fact, 
what Congress provided is they'll not only be able to make that challenge, but also challenge um, the, uh, also claim that the proceedings against them violated the laws and the Constitution of the United States. So they will they will be able to make as robust uh, due process and other challenges as uh, any criminal defendant in the United States is. Um, the, the reason that the Boumediene case is, is alarming is um, Congress, could, Congress basically did that virtually at the invitation of the Supreme Court uh, in deciding an enemy combatant case a couple of years ago uh, and in deciding that the, uh, that the president's order of military commissions was unconstitutional. What the court said was that uh, they were unhappy that the president had acted unilaterally. And they said, you know, basically, we welcome, we invite <coughs> Congress to come in and jump into the fray and regulate them. Uh, Congress turned around and did exactly that. Uh, and now, unfortunately, uh, what it looks like is the court may be saying that that's not good enough. And um, if they do rule that the enemy combatants have constitutional rights, what you will have is the bedlam that you had right after 9-11, where basically all of our enemies would feel that they had an open door to the district courts of the United States and the forum shop. Uh, and instead of having Congress carefully draw a line between national security and civil liberties, you'll have district judges making it up as they go along. And historically, what that results in is, uh, I, I would say the trajectory would be to robust proceedings to the point where they would, it would be indistinguishable uh, between the proceedings that uh, enemy combatants of wartime get um, and criminal defendants get in the United States. Um, so reasons for optimism were not abundant. Um, and the other thing that struck me is that it seems unbecoming for a lawyer, and I actually do like being a lawyer, um, to complain about the tyranny of law. Um, but I, I think in retrospect that um, it probably makes more sense for, for someone like me who's been in the process um, to, to be, um, <coughs> be unhappy about this and uh, probably a, an observer who is more remote um, because not only have, have we seen it before, uh, I've seen it before and I've seen it uh, personally before. Um, throughout the 1990s, um, law was not was not just the, the most prominent response that we had to uh, terrorism and to uh, foreign threats to national security. It was virtually the exclusive response that we had. Um, and from the time the World Trade Center was bombed in 1993 until it was destroyed in uh, 2001, um, we had roughly, uh, I think, six major and uh, three somewhat less substantial major terrorism prosecutions. Uh, and that was, from 1993 to 2001, the major way in which our country responded uh, to militant Islam, which uh, on its side, I think, was at war with us. Um, during that eight-year period, the country was attacked about once a year. Um, there's a lot of dispute among experts about how big of an enemy Al-Qaeda is. Some people put it in the neighborhood of uh, hundreds of operatives. Um, some using you know, a, a more uh, loose calculation put it in the tens of thousands. Uh, the one consensus I think there is
by a fight against the U.S. landmarks. We've had a, a fight against uh, American airliners over the Pacific that either called Pozenka or uh, the Manila air slot. Uh, Cobar Towers uh, attacked in Saudi Arabia in 96. The embassies uh, in 98. The USS Cole in 2000 and finally 9-11. I think I, I left out the Millennium Club uh, in 1999. So you have an almost every year an attack and they're getting more audacious over time. Um, so during the period of time where the enemy is growing larger and more ambitious, um, we use law as a response and we managed to take out <coughs> in eight years exactly 29 terrorists, 29. Um, and for the most part, but for a relative handful, um, 29 of lowest ranked players uh, in the militant Islamic <coughs> enterprise. Um, when, when people ask whether the criminal justice system works as a counterterrorism response, um, I, I, I usually like to point to Osama bin Laden himself as, uh, as, as a good example to think about. Uh, Osama bin Laden has been under indictment in the United States since June of 1998 before the embassy bombings, before the Millennium Club, before the call in 911. Um, adding more counts to the indictment has not been sufficient to what it's deterrent. Um, so it's, it's disheartening having had that history to see us um, go back to that again. But I, I, I fear that uh, that's exactly where we're headed. Uh, and the reason for that, I think, is that we've lost sight of what used to be a fairly clear divide between what was the political realm and what was the legal realm, and lost sight of the fact that national security uh, quintessentially is a political issue, not a legal one. It has, it has attendant legal issues as, uh, as virtually everything does since we've had such an explosion of law, particularly over the past uh, half century. Um, but at, at the end of the day, and I, I quote Madison in the paper, um, 1787, he says, the means of security can only be regulated by the means of danger, uh, by the means and danger of attack. Um, you can't, I don't, I don't think, uh, make antecedent rules for the infinite possibilities of foreign attack. And I think we have, uh, in our presumptuousness, uh, gotten to a point where we think that even war uh, and even international uh, threats can be regulated and subjected to law. Um, but I think Madison's words are no less true today than they were uh, in 1787. Um, why, what are these two realms and, and why have we lost the dividing point? Um, I believe that there is a, a deep confusion um, and, it, and it only grows worse um, between uh, or about what the nature of executive power is and what I would argue is a compartmentalized nature of executive power. Um, when the president acts, and I think functionally for these purposes, the president, when I, when I speak about discretion, I'm talking about political discretion, and that, and, and that is basically imposed in the president. Um, when the president acts, he either exercises, at least in the security realm, 
police power or national defense power. Uh, and they're importantly different. Um, when, we're, when we're acting in the domestic realm, uh, where we're dealing with the American body politic, um, the government has a relative monopoly on the use of force. Um, government power is understood within the body politic as being uh, strictly limited by the Constitution. Um, individuals have fundamental rights that they can claim against the government. Indeed, uh, individuals are regarded uh, as equals to the government at the bar of justice, uh, judges receiving uh, tell juries. Um, you have presumptions of innocence and presumptions of pri privacy that can only be overcome if the government meets certain burdens of proof. The burden of proof is always on the government. Um, and courts are interposed as a bulwark uh, to make sure that the individual's rights are protected against the government. The theory that we operate under in this realm uh, is that we would rather see government lose, essentially. We would, we would rather see, as the, as the saying often goes, um, a, a guilty person go free uh, than an innocent person be wrongly convicted or imprisoned. And you know that's our legal system. It's the envy of the world, and I think it, it ought to be the envy of the world. I don't think we would want to change it for anybody who is properly in it. Um, but the national defense realm, I think, is importantly different. Um, here, it, we're not dealing with our own body politic. We're dealing, the United States um, is, is interfacing with the rest of the world. Um, foreign en entities that the framers understood would necessarily include enemies of the United States. The treason clause actually in the Constitution talks about um, the aid and comfort to the enemy. The framers recognized uh, that uh, there always would be enemies and, needed, and created a strong executive in order to be able to respond to that. Um, other nations and subnational groups claim the right to use force. So we're not in the same situation where the government has a monopoly on the use of force uh, in our domestic body politics. Um, the government um, essentially is, is uh, free to use whatever force it can muster in order to respond to attacks. It's not limited in a fashion as it is in the domestic political situation. Individuals, uh, at least maybe until the next Supreme Court term, uh, do not have rights to claim against the United States government and to claim under our Constitution. And I think the, the basic message in the when you're dealing with national defense powers is that uh, the government has to prevail. You can't take the position that we would prefer to see government lose. We need to see government win uh, because that is the only way that you will preserve a system that all of our civil liberties are dependent on. Um, the idea of the courts that flowed out of that dichotomy uh, originally, I believe, was to ensure that the courts did not have a role in national security. The main role of the courts was to ensure that people within the domestic body politic got a fair shake from the government. Um, the idea, I think, now has become that the courts somehow stand outside our government and above our government. And instead of being the place that makes sure that Americans get a fair shake, they become a forum where all of the world, including the enemies of the United States, are invited to come in and press their case against America. Um, I'll, let me wind up. I, I tried to draw the, um, 
distinction between how Roosevelt handled the, uh, the case that's now comes down to us as uh, ex parte serum, where we found these German saboteurs during the Second World War in the United States, and within six weeks, um, they had been tried by military commissions, had their Supreme Court argument, and been executed, except for uh, two of them who cooperated with the government. Um, very interestingly, Roosevelt let it be known, and, and this uh, was made known in no uncertain terms to, uh, to the Supreme Court at the time, that if the court ordered the release of these enemy combatants, he would not comply with the order. And that was, uh, at that time, as I tried to argue in the paper, um, just another instance of a long tradition up to that point of presidents of the United States, particularly at wartime, uh, making sure that the court knew the limits of its power and the limits of its place in what I argue is the, the quintessentially uh, political activity of national security. Um, contrast that to the enemy combatant cases we have today, which are long drawn out affairs, go on for multiple years, and, and you basically usually lose. Um, and I, I just think it's telling uh, to, to take a look at what uh, Justice Robert Jackson said in the 1948 uh, case called the Chicago and Southern Airlines, which I, I excerpt in the paper. Um, it's so starkly different from what our assumptions are today. It's, it's, just, uh, it's just bracing to read it. But uh, Jackson, who I think is an interesting character for this because he was a giant in both the political realm and the legal realm, points out that the president, both as commander-in-chief and as the nation's organ for foreign affairs, has available intelligence services whose reports are not and ought not be public to the world. It would be intolerable for courts uh, without the relevant information uh, to review and perhaps nullify actions of the executive taken on information properly held secret. Nor can courts sit in camera in order to be taken into executive confidences. But even if courts could require full disclosure, the very nature of executive decisions as to foreign policy is political, not judicial. Such decisions are wholly confided by our Constitution to the political departments of the government, executive, and legislative. They are delicate, complex, and involve large elements of prophecy. They are and should be undertaken only by those with a direct, oh, I'm sorry, only by those directly responsible to the people whose welfare they advance or imperil. They are decisions of a kind for which the judiciary has neither aptitude, facility, nor responsibility, and which has long been held to belong in the domain of political power, not subject to judicial intrusion and ignorance. Um, the framers, when they <coughs> were giving us a system that could maximize our ability to protect ourselves, I think understood that there had to be an accountability nexus between the people who made decisions in the arena of national security and the people whose lives were at stake. And where I think we are now in peril, um, it is because we've lost sight of that, and we, we are now slowly but surely shifting decision makers in this most political of arenas to the actors in government who are the most insulated and the least accountable to the people whose lives are at stake. And I think if that trend continues, uh, the longer it continues, the less safe we'll be. Thanks. Before moving on to the discussion of that paper, we'll take a five-minute break. But if we can all be back here by quarter to eleven. Which way is the left? Uh, right, right, and the left.
suggesting martial law, again, showing how different then was from now. Um, a judge during General Jackson's administration of martial law uh, issued a writ of habeas corpus to order him to release someone who had been imprisoned. And Jackson's response was to have his army go to the courthouse and march the judge seven miles out of uh, New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to make. First, uh, Andrew, I'm always informed by the things that you provide me with on National Review Online, and I thank you yet again for this paper, which is, uh, I think, uh, very well very well organized. Uh, uh, the, the first point is kind of goes right to what Roger was suggest suggesting right at the outset, that conservatives shouldn't be gaming, and I'm reminded of a story I've often told between the optimist and the pessimist, and the optimist in Pangolossian terms says this is the best of all possible worlds. The pessimist look, looks at him and says, you're right. <laughs> and I, I somehow got that feeling in reading your, uh, your, reading your paper. It's uh, very much like the line out of Kafka, uh, there's always hope, but not for us. <laughs> now, l let, me, uh, let me get to uh, the, the substantive comment I really wanted to make here. Uh, I think that the difference between the actions of FDR in World War II and what is happening today are really quite profound and I think very interesting. But I think it's also very easy to overlook what happened in the Cold War, which suggests that there is a pattern that has emerged from the Cold War to the present. And I'd like to try and expand your argument to a lot in larger cultural and political terms. During the Cold War, we had communists, anti-communists, and anti-anti-communists. The anti-anti-communists argued that Joseph McCarthy was a much greater threat to civil liberties in the United States than Joseph Stalin. It was an argument that was very well understood on the part of some Americans. He clearly embraced it, the Bishop of Askey's, for example, and people like that. Their children are now adopting a position that is very <coughs> much like the Cold War position. You have terrorists, anti-terrorists, and anti-anti-terrorists. The anti-anti-terrorists in the United States today argue that the real threat is the FISA regulations, the Patriot Act, George Bush, the Attorney General, not Osama bin Laden, not Chief Omar, not Nasrallah. These are distant threats. They don't regard these as real threats. So the, the problem that you have is they do not understand in cultural and political terms what is the real threat? And for them, their only understanding is that the real threat is the threat to civil liberties on the part of these misguided Republicans who are in the White House. Now, in, in a sense, this is not unlike what we saw in the Cold War. It made it very difficult to fight in the Cold War, just as it's making it very difficult for us to fight this war today. So while I think you're correct in suggesting that FDR saw, saw this matter very differently, differently during the case of the German saboteurs, there is a kind of interesting link between what was happening in the Cold War and what is happening at the moment. Uh, well, this, um, I, I was reading what you said there, uh, Herb. And, um, you, the, your discussion, uh, Andy, of uh, kind of the intrusion of the courts into all this has raised this terrifying specter of the, uh, the possibility that not too far down the road we'll, we will find a terrorist applying uh, for a permit to conduct their business to the appropriate <laughs> authorities and <laughs> you know, no whales, spotted owls, or beetles are harmless right, in, the, in the process. But, but you know, you, you do paint a, a gloomy picture, um, or maybe a realistic picture. Um, uh, but every development can be regarded as, you know, maybe it's peace, maybe it's chaos, but it's also an opportunity. And I just wonder, if, you know, you know, you, you, uh, you and Bob know a lot about the resources of the law, there are many resources, and the resources of politics. Um, I mean, my question would be. What can we do? Where do we find the, uh, you know, the instrumentality of an Andrew Jackson, somebody who will think about these things in a, in a new way that, you know, and come
come up with the contemporary equivalent of marching the judge seven miles outside of New Orleans. I mean, there's got, there has to be, um, these, these are, you know, this is not the final line of defense. This is, this is a kind of ongoing process. So what happens next? It's interesting. I, um, I mentioned in the piece uh, Jack Goldsmith's new book, uh, which is really a, a very interesting book called The Terror Present. Mm -hmm. um, and he has a critique of how the Justice Department has handled war on terror issues. And his uh, bottom line is that they, in many instances, have had good legal arguments to make. But number one, they've always taken taken it too far. And two, <coughs> and I think this is the important part, they have shrunk from the task <coughs> of explaining why these things needed to be done um, and, and just done them to the point where they've given the opposition basically the means to to define the endeavor. And I, I think this challenge today requires not only the right tools, but it also has to have a rhetorical aspect to it. We have to not only do the things that need to be done to protect the country, but I think we also need, public education is a, is a very important part of it. And I think going to be profoundly important for the next president, whoever it is, to be able to explain why we need to do the things we do. And I think for as much as Bush and Park's been in the right place in many ways, he's really failed in that important aspect. Daniel.
supreme example of this was the judgment of, uh, we don't yet have a supreme law, but we're about to get one. Uh, they're building the courthouse now. And so the old connection between the House of Lords and the Secretary uh, will be broken. And uh, I have no doubt that that will have the same consequences that Andy described. Britain, the Human Rights Act, which, which is pretty, what, 
how it came into the legislation is that you've got to remember up to 97, the Labour Party had been out of office for 18 years, and they still subject to period constituencies. And one of the pledges was effectively the constituency of left-wing lawyers that incorporated the Human Rights Act. And all the, this hasn't been reversed, but all sorts of legislation was passed by Blair in the early in the early in his early years of office, which they've since reversed on education and all sorts of policies. So they, I mean, reverse Tory policies have now gone full circle on quite a lot of issues, yeah, but not not on the Human Rights Act. I'm sorry, I just want to ask two things about that. Number one, when that happened, was it not so that they they basically told the British people that you know don't worry, they won't be able to overrule. Actually, Parliament, and then, and then within about 18 months, they're all over. Exactly. Still on this narrow point, the fact is, this is very important, and I, mean, I don't resolve that as, as, as much as you would, that there is a, 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 a under the Act, the government can go to Parliament and say the court has overturned this decision, but we, but under the certificate arrangement, whatever it's called, we're going to do it anyway with your approval. But they never have done. They've complained and complained and complained, but they haven't used a provision of the Act without which the Act would not have been passed. I mean, it's not clear under European law whether they can actually use the process. This is, uh, sorry to bore the Americans. Yeah. To bore the Americans, what you're seeing at the, at the level of Britain is what American jurists and commentators warn you about, yeah. about international governance through the United Nations or other agencies. You're seeing exactly the same thing. It's almost as if Britain is an experiment in how it goes wrong uh, and how these kind of left-wing internationalists lead to all sorts of destruction of what had been seen as traditional aspects and uh, that have ingrained our constitutional liberties. Uh, Robert Paul. I was, on this small point here, the Canada has a provision like that, uh, Article 33 of their Charter of Rights, and it's never used either, and, and largely because I think of the color of the robe. People do, if you try to use it, people say you're interfering with the independence of the judiciary, which of course is precisely the point of the article. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, 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 I'm getting tired, Roger, of being told I mustn't be gloomy. I want to <laughs> <laughs> be gloomy, I'll be gloomy. <laughs> Irving Crystal said that his position was that of a cheerful pessimist, which is all right so far as it goes, but he also, I was, one day I was watching Clarence Thomas being uh, hectored in his confirmation hearing broadcasted into the world, our session with Peter Kares on smoking coke cans. <laughs> I went down the hall and said, Irving, uh, Western civilization is coming to an end in living color on television. And Irving said, of course it's coming to an end. But don't worry, he said, it takes a while. In the meantime, you can live well. <laughs> um, but I'm not so sure we so much time. We're in a very peculiar position, strangled by lawyers, but what McCarthy says in his paper, which is absolutely true and very well said, but I think the situation is even a little worse than that. Uh, I'm not going to outbid me. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't even try. <laughs> uh, if you look at the, at the court now, we have a, almost a one-man rule in these matters. In a recent term, I think it was last term, there were 23 five-to-four decisions and uh, Justice Kennedy was on the winning side in all of them, which means he is determining the course of the court. We have, we have four. We have now effectively one-man rule in these areas. 
He's, he's, he's uh, assumed the Kennedy O'Connor chair. Um, and to get an idea, Roger said we must be hope because within the resources of the law, there must be a way to check these people. You can't check people with, with law who, who don't care about law, who care about enforcing their values in the name of the law. Nothing you can say to them. Um, they will have any effect. But the, and this is in, indicative, but Justice Kennedy was given an award by something called the Academy of Achievement. And he gave them an interview in which he said two things. He said first that uh, every year the court, most of many years the court made more important decisions than the Congress did. Uh, with the exception of foreign affairs, perhaps. <laughs> perhaps has now come around and doing it. And later in that same interview, asked what a court, how a justice should approach his job. He said, you must understand you've been given the opportunity to shape the destiny of the country. Uh, said, the framers didn't want to frame it for you. They wanted you to frame it. Uh, well, with an attitude like that and the swing vote on all of these so-called decided things, we're not anywhere near uh, law Surprising, I suppose, that uh, that the law is picking up the liberal agenda, both domestically and now internationally, uh, due to the war. Um, they've, they've done this in the domestic affairs, and they've now done it. They're starting to do it in foreign affairs and war. And uh, I don't think there's much relief in sight. The uh, 2008 election, you're likely to get a Democrat, which may mean cement is going to be placed. Or if we get a Republican president, we're almost certain to have a, a more heavily Democratic Senate, which means that nobody good will be confirmed. Uh, so the prospect, I think, is for a period of some years judicial aggression against uh, the political branches and against the military. And I, talking about the resources of the law, I think the only possible uh, resource in the commission of the war is presidential defiance of a court order. Uh, I don't know what president's going to do that. It would be very unsettling. Everybody would get depressed and everybody else would get very highly excited. It may come down to something that looks very much like an, an issue of survival. And if it does, I think the only thing I can think of is not a clever argument addressed to Reinhardt on the Ninth Circuit, <coughs> but presidential defiance. John, um, I wanted to pick up what Herb said and to say that I think we have to acknowledge uh, in the cultural politics surrounding the kind of decisions that Andy is writing about uh, that the right bears a good deal of responsibility for the present bad situation in two ways. First of all, uh, well, three ways. There are, first of all, there's the existence of the conservative libertarians um, who have been, um, I think, almost as critical as some of the uh, left-wingers in, in opposing 
common sense as a um, as a general thing, which I would quite support, but I, I think most people would agree. Then secondly, um, I think that as a whole, the Republican Party has made a great mistake in its attitude to judicial politics. It has decided not to fight the issue on principle or to take the kind of action that Bob just suggested may be necessary, and I agree with him, but instead to rely on being able to get the right judges. And the fact is that even, and I think that's highly unlikely to succeed in a world in which the products of all the major law schools of our, are on the extreme liberal wing here at Wimbledon argument. But even if it had the possibility of success, um, frankly, it's, it, it's still conceding a degree of power that should belong to the Congress and to the executive, to the judiciary, which should not be conceded. And we are not prepared to fight on principle on that. I'm, of course, an, I'm an extremist on this. My view is we should pass a, a propose a constitutional amendment saying no legislation passed by both houses of Congress and signed by the president should be declared invalid by any American court um, <laughs> uh, on the grounds that the two that one <coughs> branch of government should not be able to outvote the other two branches. So that's one, my first one point. Man Sorry? One man. Uh, well, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Now the second point is that uh, <coughs> this is directly related to. Uh, to the Bush administration um, and its multiculturalism. The Bush administration is a multiculturalist administration. After September the 11th, I think we all knew we were living in a brief moment in which a lot of sensible things could be done, but that the mood would fade. <coughs> and at that moment, I wasn't involved in Hudson at the time, uh, Herb was, but John Fonte and Michael Horowitz wrote to, got contacted the White House and they, they said, look, you should use this moment in the way that Franklin Roosevelt used wartime to construct a broad political consensus of cultural unity. Make it a political thing, give it real life, uh, bring in legislation and, and certain symbolic action to support it. And in effect, to defeat multiculturalism, it wouldn't have even put it that way, but it would have, in a sense, restored the unified concept of American nationality and a common culture. Well, it got nowhere. The White, you know, they went to the White House, they spent the, they got the public back. Uh, they were invited to do things, but the whole thing fell in, uh, just went into the bureaucratic sands. Now I think <coughs> that was partly because that's often happens to proposals that people have got deep briefcases and proposals get lost in them. That's 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 un, that's unavoidable and doesn't have great political significance. But frankly, I believe that the administration was unsympathetic to this idea because it ran counter to its own view of what America today is like and its. That's a multiculturalist vision. And that vision is fundamentally incompatible with the kind of decisive action that you want to take because that requires a united citizenry in support of it. Jerry, if I could just make one point, uh, just a, a, slight, a, a slight conclusion to what you said. I think your analysis is absolutely correct. However, immediately after 9 11, I did meet with the president and I did talk to him about the proposal that John and I had come up with for War Information Office to broaden it, which was a kind of cultural thing of what was happening in the United States at that time. The president was very affirmative, and he said, please write a proposal. I'm very eager to see what you will do. He didn't reject the idea. However, it ended up on the desk of Karen Hughes. Karen Hughes is a multiculturalist. <laughs> she doesn't understand what was going on, and she was given the authority to, uh, to head this, uh, this mission. And part of the difficulty in this administration, at least from my perspective, is that the president has put a much greater emphasis on loyalty rather than competence. And so you have people like Karen there who will supposedly lead the public diplomacy effort, but she's really ill-equipped to do so. Well, I'm happy to be corrected on that point, but the, the end result is the same. The no, 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 that's right. Jerry, right. 
Secondly, uh, I had various other definitions, but I took off from Maurice Cowley uh, the notion that conservatism is also a method, a sort of at least semi, if not completely, academic method. That is to say, a discovery procedure. Uh, quite what this means is, I suppose, up for grabs. But one of the things it, uh, it means is that somebody trying to understand politics should look at the past and the actions of people rather than listen too much to what they say. In other words, uh, the opinions people have <coughs> are usually derivative, fashionable, and so on, and misleading. You have <coughs> in Britain quite a lot of Labour members of Parliament who in, in principle support comprehensive schools but actually send their children to one version of private school or another. Again, the talk in public life is all about needs, but everybody knows that the reality is are things relating to bureaucracy uh, and to power uh, and indeed to superiority and honor and so on. Cowling's own, um, I suppose, most famous use of this thing, if it is a method, was to observe that somehow Christianity disappeared almost entirely from a vast range of types of writing. Uh, in Britain in the course of the 19th and during the 20th centuries. And he thought that this was uh, an astonishing and remarkable absence. And he therefore analyzed the, the thing called public doctrine, in which, of course, he discovered very similar proto-Christian themes um, coming up. Um, I suppose the cliche we would currently use about that would be to say that this disappearance of explicit Christian discussion is the elephant in the room, and hence a conservative attitude to what is happening in the world helps you to see these things that are not immediately evident. I then moved on to my theme, and the theme, of course, is uh, the contrast between the past and the present. And the contrast is between Britain in 1897, which I choose simply because it's the year of Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee and great outpouring, hats in the air and so on, a great patriotic uh, sense of feeling and um, public support happened at that time. Um, it was, of course, by no means ideal. I'm not forgetting the fact that uh, new things were happening. There was a class struggle in the form of trade unions and the government. Um, there was already the emergence of what came to be called the new liberalism, out of which the welfare state um, becomes uh, developed. Uh, you might say, of course, that uh, a lot of public rejoicing is not a sign of anything particularly real. But of course, that rejoicing was immediately to be tested first by the Boer War and secondly by the First World War. And what happened then showed pretty clearly that there were very large numbers of people who um, uh, wanted to serve their country and were prepared to give duty first and so on.
Um, if you contrast that event, and of course 1897 happens to be a, a British date, the corresponding dates at that period, end of the 19th century, could be chosen for other, all other countries. If you contrast that with 2007, uh, we have welfare states, which by contrast with uh, Lord Salisbury's government in 1897, do vast amounts of <coughs> their people providing welfare. They're very keen to um, do things to uh, help the needs, to supply the needs of the people. They're very keen to face up to the problems of what I now know rather patronizingly as ordinary people. Society is richer, there's no absolute poverty. There are certainly people at the bottom of the heap, but they're, being there is in some measure um, the result of their own incapacities, which are very hard to, uh, to deal with from above. Now, in such a well-managed paradise, you might think that politicians are adored for all the good things they provide. The remarkable contrast, however, is that while the government was vastly admired by the people in 1897, politicians and the government is rather despised by the people in 2007. Now, this seems to me to be a very interesting contrast. Uh, it's a contrast in political psychology because the explicit political psychology is that in a democratic state, the more you provide benefits for the people, the more support you have. And of course, over the short term, I guess that's undoubtedly true. Um, but our current political psychology seems to show almost exactly the reverse. The question is how we explain this curious and interesting fact. Uh, gratitude is, of course, uh, quite a strong emotion, but it wears out fairly quickly. Furthermore, um, people are usually, there's quite a lot of social psychology work on this, not greatly impressed by receiving benefits from people who haven't had to make any particular sacrifice in order to provide those benefits. Indeed, <coughs> in those cases, um, the recipients are commonly suspicious the um, people benefiting them are doing it for their own purposes. So we have here, I think, uh, an interesting case in which um, something that looks as if it's the most obvious explanation of a political phenomenon is in fact not. Um, there is a, a, an almost personal relationship between governments and uh, the people these days, or at least um, at least that's what governments try to, to do. And I think I mentioned at some point um, Napoleon's, uh, uh, Karl Marx's marvelous remark on Louis Napoleon, that it was as if Louis Napoleon wanted to absorb all the property and wealth of France and then give it back to the people so that the basis of his power would be gratitude rather than any kind of old-fashioned constitution legitimacy. So that's the contrast that interested me. And I'm not, of course, suggesting that we want to go back to 1897, uh, which would horrify us and we'd hate living in it for a whole variety of reasons I needn't go into. Um, what I then move on to is um, 
to discuss a number of variations on this theme. The first of which is the question whether we have a different image of what the human condition is. And what I suggest is that the more or less Christian beliefs in the 19th century might be generalized into the idea that life is a kind of game in which we are challenged by a variety of temptations and that the, our self-respect, our honor, what matters in life is how we <coughs> respond to those, not our success or failure, though no doubt that, of course, is always important, but it's a moral question of how we respond to them. Um, by contrast, I think, what we now have is an, a competing image of the nature of a modern state, namely that it is an association of people with needs, and these needs are variably satisfied, and there is an ideal according to which um, we need both individually and collectively to change our conduct and our policies in such a way that there will be an equal satisfaction of needs, no doubt they vary with most people, uh, in, for all people in the state. And this is a political view, but it's more than uh, about current politics, but it's more than that. It is in its wider version the project of a liberatory mission to reclaim the world. I mean, the uh, African poverty, for example, the whole set of things called ethics um, is currently advanced as a set of policies so desirable that they are not only politically prudent and wise, but also morally imperative. So we now have um, a moral view and a political view in which there is a project, and that is the project for satisfying needs of one kind or another. And morally, this is the view that the highest thing we can be is an instrument for uh, satisfying and serving other people. There used actually, at the beginning of the 20th century, there used to be, there was a lot of talk about service. Um, people giving speech day speeches and so on would talk about the importance of service without ever specifying precisely who was serving and in what way. But Baden-Powell and Boy Scouts are a, a notable and interesting example of this. And in the middle of the 20th century, that came to be increasingly rejected. But now, in a more specific way, I think it's returning. So here you have, I think, two basic conceptions um, which are important to the change between 19th and 21st centuries. Secondly, what distinguishes the moral life in these two historical situations? Well, the obvious answer that everybody gives is that in 1897, the dominant moral conception was that of duty, whereas today our dominant moral conception is that bastard child of our belief in freedom, human rights. Um, now, I don't, um, I've got a note saying that I very much don't want here to be misunderstood as doing what in, in British television terms is called the grumpy old men bit. 
which consists of saying, oh God, these days people only think about rights, they don't worry about duties anymore. What the, the point, <laughs> we're all grumpy, I see, Bob. Um, the important point that I want to make is that I think there is almost a kind of hunger in quite a lot of people to enjoy the pleasure of doing one's duty even if perhaps one has to grit one's teeth doing it. That is, we enjoy the rights, we want lots of things, we enjoy having all these things, but as the polls, these idiotic polls often suggest, somehow we're not any happier that way. Hence, if there's any suggestion I have to make about the conservative future in all of this, the suggestion is the familiar one, of course, that dependency is the thing we need to stigmatize with all possible vigor. And we need to encourage ways in which people will be increasingly thrown upon their own resources with their own duties to look after themselves and so on. There is, I think, a hunger for that special pleasure of doing one's duty. Now those, I think, are the two uh, things that will uh, that are, are worth discussing here. I've got two other variations, one of them on disinterestedness, which seems to me a very important one, but I don't want to press it here, and the other is on censorship and manners. The idea, uh, very current in our cultural life, that transgression, uh, you know, so I read recently somebody saying the great thing about Oscar Wilde is that all his writings were transgressive. They were subversive. The idea <coughs> that, that the present world we live in is so wildly uh, evil and immoral that anything that subverts it must be a good thing. So there's censorship and manners, and that's partly connected with the interesting question of the relationship between democracy and politics on the one hand, of course, and the immense uncontrollable, uncontrollable power of computers and the media. I suppose one general conclusion that might um, be applied to this is to say that the world we live in is the world that we want it to be. I mean, our uh, informal, easygoing, free society that we live in is what we want. We enjoy the informality, the lack of formality and so on. And we can control that. But what we cannot do is control the implications of what we want. We like, for example, the fact that teenage girls who become pregnant are no longer uh, forced into shotgun marriages or forced to adopt their babies and so on. But a generation down the line, we have this underclass of poorly uh, educated and brought up um, uh, young boys who form gangs on the streets and stab each other and, and all the rest of it. So I think these are, I think these are important themes, but um, they're, um, they're ones I can't, shan't go into later. I, I mean, I, the notion of variations on this past-present theme is an interesting one, and I wanted, one of the other ones I wanted to do was a kind of phenomenology of the apparently useless things whose 
disappearance has affected our politics, our morality, and our social forms. The hat, for example, men no longer wear hats. One of the consequences is, sorry, <laughs> that's true, is that one can no longer signify a form of respect by raising one's hat to a lady. Or the use of irregular verbs, I think I mentioned somewhere today, Miss Bjelner suggests, as being apparently useless, but nonetheless having important functions, and so on. I think there's an interesting theme there, but I think that's, that's, uh, that's quite enough. And um, what I have failed to do in this paper is to put it all together. But um, anyway, I decreed it to you for what it's worth. Okay, thanks. Two of nine. Yes, thank you. Very stimulating paper indeed. I take the thrust of your paper. You say that the future of conservatism can be nothing less than a ruby branch opposition to the liberatory mission. And you also say that we must conserve what it seeks to destroy, namely modernity. Now, some would argue that modernity itself is the liberatory mission, uh, so to speak, and would also argue that to restrain that liberatory, uh, liberatory mission, one must resort to pre-modern uh, bastions, uh, namely uh, religion. And I'd be curious to have your response to those propositions. Um, by modernity, I mean what has happened since the 16th or possibly 17th century up to the present. And it is the emergence out of, indeed, medieval roots of a society in which, this is the Anglican society, it's not the rest of Europe so much, in which um, all institutions involve a balanced tension between uh, two competing possible views, government and opposition, we invented, as it were, in the early 19th century, although it was well before. Uh, prosecution and defense and criminal uh, trials as against an attempt at even free trade with a lot of competing forms, etc. Um, plus a moral structure, a religious structure, incidentally, in which, of course, there are lots of churches and there's a lot of competition in religion. And the moral life is one in which you have a lot of individuals wanting to do the right thing with a great variety of conceptions of what that right thing might be. Now this, I take it, very brief sketch of what I mean by modernity. Now the liberatory mission <coughs> that is going on at the moment is <coughs> suggesting that we can have a better kind of life, satisfy all those needs by applying a single principle rather than these balanced tensions uh, in which morality in, in which there's always disagreement. And of course, moral variation means people often do the wrong thing. Instead of that, the application of a single overriding principle is the way to improve our society. Democracy in politics, equality in um, social life and in nearly every other way. Uh, uh, what's the multiculturalism in uh, ethnic relations and so on. So in other words, what I mean by modernity is the form of life which we have enjoyed, particularly in the Anglophone world since about the 17th century, for better or worse, and its replacement by something that looks very much like a replay of all those traditional societies in which 
there is one right way of living, one right way of thinking, and it is enforced by the state. Uh, I, I'm, uh, I always am inspired by the things you write, Ken, and this is yet another, another example. You describe it as a messy paper, but that has a lot of interesting points in it. And the one that comes to mind is the tension between the liberatory mission and the unorthodox one. Peter made reference to this before when he talked about the relationship between relativism and some sort of orthodoxy that's emerged as well. And I think an exemplar of this is the mayor of New York City. So for those of you on the other side of the pond, let me give you just several examples. Uh, mayor Bloomberg uh, has uh, been responsible for reinstalling uh, re a person who lost his position because he was one of the imams who was proselytizing in our prisons and was quite successful. And as a consequence, there was an outcry about his role. He lost his position, but was put back in his spot largely because the mayor said, we emphasize free speech in this country. And so he is still engaged in proselytizing in our prisons. The second point is that the mayor also defended Cahill LeBron High School, which is a high school that will emphasize Arabic studies in Brooklyn, located in Atlantic Avenue in an area that is populated by a fairly large Arab population. The curriculum, however, will be pretty much the curriculum installed by the Saudis, the, the uh, kind of a, a quasi-madrasa, even though the Board of Education claims that it's not the case. Now, on the other hand, this kind of freedom that the, uh, the mayor has emphasized has to be seen against an, the backdrop of another series of conditions. There is no one who has put in place a more prohibitive smoking ban than the mayor of New York. You cannot smoke in any public place in New York City. And the mayor is absolutely adamant about it. But he goes even further by now saying we cannot have any trans bats in our diet. Now, anyone <laughs> who looks at this matter says this is, this is patently absurd. Trans bats account for about 2% of all of the foods that we consume, as opposed to saturated fats, which are about 15% and far more dangerous to our health than trans fats. Now, when the chef at the Four Seasons was asked about this question, he said, well, I am giving up trans fats completely. We're going to cook with butter and all, all the time. <laughs> now, I can just imagine the, uh, the effect that this is going to have on those people who go to the Four Seasons. <laughs> well, what? This, is, this is rather ridiculous. All of it is silly. But what it does suggest is this tension between the mission of liberation and this orthodoxy that has emerged in the case of the mayor, what he is an exemplar of. And I, and I think your paper is very suggestive, very suggestive about this, this complication that exists in the liberal mind. And I do think of the mayor as a kind of quintessential liberal. Mm -hmm.
process in America as well at the same time. Um, now, just on that, I mean, there has never been a time when the sportsman or woman has been more sort of aggrandized in, in his or her prestige than today. I mean, you know, the heroes of our, our youth now are not military heroes. They are very often sporting ones. And yet, um, that sort of uh, sense of, of the ethos of, of, of fair play and um, being tested according to how you perform in the, in, in the team, that seems to have disappeared. Um, and in fact, the most admired sportsmen are very often the ones who break the rules uh, or who don't really um, believe in rules. Uh, so I, I think that's all very peculiar and, and paradoxical, and I'd, I'd like you to say what you think about that. But the other thing is, uh, you contrast the games player with the philanthropist. You say virtue is now philanthropy. Well, I think of philanthropy as actually a great Victorian sort of virtue. Um, and the same applies, of course, in America, where we have these great men, Carnegie and Mellon and you know, the people who, who and, and of course, here, they, they still exist and flourish. Um, so, uh, and there's nothing, it seems to me, wrong with philanthropy per se. Uh, what you say is that modern philanthropy is an abstract philanthropy. It doesn't have any connection with the, the beneficiary. Not, it's not for um, friends, children, relatives. Um, the abstract part is of the needy. Um, so again, I'd, I'd, I'd like to know, I'd like you to sort of clarify that distinction a little, a little more. Can I do that just um, immediately? Yeah. Philanthropy is just poetry. Um, now, I don't mean, of course, to offer poetry. I don't mean to yeah. do anything quite like that. There are now courses in American universities, I gather, in philanthropy, um, the general program being you too, you don't have to, you wish to be a philanthropist. This is, this is something you can study. And of course, Rockwell Tucker concerned with whether bureaucracy is non-government organizations and right. so on. Uh, in other words, um, what I'm getting at here, and that's another aspect of what I'm talking about, is that whereas for the Victorians, immorality was sex, for um, our in our current world, immorality is selfishness, as one kind or another, and the opposite of that is altruism or philanthropy or giving something back to the community. In other words, um, I agree with what you essentially are saying, but what I'm attacking is the canting nonsense that goes on alongside it. Jerry. Yeah. <coughs> okay. Um, it's all this, or naturally, we people who are sceptical about ambitious programs of human and social improvement. Uh, but both in games player, which we haven't discussed yet, uh, and in tennis, there is almost a bourgeois in the general talks about three, four Christian Renaissance. Uh, uh, Ken uh, wants uh, uh, Jesus to make a comeback in a, in, a, in a big way. And it's very difficult to know uh, from what source this Established church, which is discredited, uh, 
has fallen in their valuations. So we're sceptical, but yet, and yet, um, it's perhaps worth remembering that those uh, young uh, Muslims who blow up uh, London buses and underground trains uh, do not come from Afghanistan uh, or, uh, 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 or um, Pakistan. Uh, they come from soulless, houseless states, places like Yorkshire or Bolton's uh, areas of, uh, of um, uh, the North and the Midlands, which are cultural deserts. And it's fairly clear that the appeal of duty to these young people is, is very considerable. I mean, they're prepared to give everything, including their lives, to achieve their aims. So it may well be that there is some uh, untapped desire for duty, uh, which, um, which can somehow achieve the objectives <coughs> you describe in your table. But it's, it, uh, it's just very difficult to see who's going to organize it. Yeah, um, I feel you're absolutely right. You can't have a crusade. No, don't think that's going to happen. Well, in the future is unpredictable. I mean, who could have predicted that in the Roman Empire that they would see all that glory? If preaching had turned up, people worshipped a, a crucified god. I mean, it's totally, un, you know, weirdly unpredictable. I don't know what's going to happen. It could be religious revival. It could be anything. All I'm suggesting really here is that um, something much humbler. You see, uh, Thatcher was lucky. <coughs> Thatcher had it easy because she had three winters of success. When things begin to break down, and there is a certain breakdown, people talk about a broken society and so on, then there is an opportunity for people, for governments to come in and to make at least some changes. So some sort of people operate there um, doing things about the national health service and so on. I'm, I'm not thinking anything grand here. Grand things might happen, and I hope they do, but we can't predict them. I'm just thinking of bringing duty back into government, and it's a rhetoric that could um, have certain success. George? Can duty, though, be uh, developed in the abstract? It must it have a base in religion or some sense of one's place in the cosmos? all declaim in favor of duty, but is there a need for a larger worldview to sustain it? Uh, it clearly came out of a larger worldview. I mean, I'm, I take the view that morality, what I mean by the moral life, individuals looking at the world and saying, what is my situation? Oh, yes, these are the appropriate rules and so on. There's no morality in any other civilization except ours. Um, that is to say, if you go to India, custom and religion virtually determine what people do or what they don't do. But it's not a sort of, there's not an independent realm of I have a responsibility in my personal honor, separated from the idea uh, of what a, good, uh, what a good Hindu is or a good Confucian or what have you. I think that is something more or less unique to us. Now that came out of religion. I think it came out of this, this sort of the, the Protestant ethic and a lot of Calvinism. The, there is a lot of stuff about how in the 17th century, Protestantism particularly um, moralized work, the everyday activity, you know, doing your 
duty became something that gave you spiritual uh, benefits. <coughs> and I think when I'm talking about the moral life, slowly detached itself in some degree from religion, so that the religion certainly inspires this kind of thing, but there is also an independent realm, moderately independent <coughs> of the moral life. I'm so this is sort of, um, I mean, I, I've been very rabbiting on about this for quite a long time, but, uh, and I take it that this is something that most people, at least outside this room, would not accept, namely that we have morality and nobody else does. I mean, other in, in other, I mean, lots of individuals in the rest of the world have become westernized in this sense. They were, and we, and we have uh, a whole program of, of human rights we want to spread, which sort of spreads a caricatured version of what I'm talking about. But anyway, that's a big thing, and I, <coughs> I credit <coughs> your pardon in not going too far into it. Well, just, uh, well, just uh, two very brief things. One is, uh, if I could put in a word for Oscar Wilde, not as a sort of a subversive writer, but as a very funny one, uh, <laughs> from whom you can uh, you can learn a lot about. The importance of being a is one of the, is almost the greatest comedy. It's, it's, it's a masterpiece. I think you can learn a lot about the comedy of manners, which means a lot about uh, life, and which means a lot about uh, moral life too. I suppose. But, yeah, right. but you mentioned. Everyone knows that he broke the rules. So in a curious way, there is a sense in the United States 
for doing the right thing still matters.
street standards and they would be adjusted to <coughs> Muslims here and Christians there and the Hindus there and all the other various groups. That is clearly there is an attack upon the sovereign state in the form in which we have previously understood it. And it's, um, it's not an attack from below, it's not democratic. And it's not because the sovereign state as Amy McCarthy's paper is, is um, suggesting is not that the sovereign state is coming increasingly with a heavy weight upon it, although in some respects it is. It's something coming from the side in the form of an ideology of internationalism and law. And we were talking about when we were talking about the, the Muslims. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we've got Don, and then we'll go back to Ken for any concluding thoughts. Actually, mine is a really an invitation to Ken that on the topic of Homo Ludens to consider the film Chariots of Fire, because there are at least three um, uh, attitudes to sport in that film, aren't there? There is the Scottish missionary, for whom sporting achievement is something to be achieved for the glory of God and within boundaries laid down by him. Then there is the, um, he's the Jewish runner, um, who is, uh, in a sense, the, the spirit of bourgeois professionalism. But we're slightly biased against that, uh, uh, biased in his favor by the criticism coming from two anti-Semitic dons played by John Gielgud and Lindsay Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the point is that their, their actual criticism, namely, well, you know, it's all very well, but it's just a game and you shouldn't, be, you know, you shouldn't uh, spend your whole life, so to speak, developing your legs at the expense of everything else in the, in the body and mind. And then there's the third point of view, which is a kind of aristocratic noblesse oblige, uh, uh, but also easygoing view about sport, in which, remember, the aristocrat actually gives up his chance uh, to, uh, to um, uh, the Red Cross runner because uh, he's, already got a, he's already got a gong anyway. He's already won something, and it uh, seems only decent to, to do <laughs> so. And I think this is a very interesting film because, I mean, this, 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 these three choices are very interesting because uh, it seems to me that when you were describing modern society, the Atlas attitude running it on a kind of blend of, of God and professionalism now. And, yeah. and, um, and the other point of view, namely, well, you know, um, there are lots of us, uh, we've all got lots of different kinds of talents, attitudes, and so on, and we should really just be allowed to get on with developing them all as best we can, or, you know, uh, in other words, laissez-faire attitude to people's um, abilities and choices in life. Just as long as you don't describe this as letting people achieve their potential, <laughs> <laughs> which is only what acorns do, and people have to remember opportunity costs. If you develop your legs, the rest will wither away. Uh, just in reply to Daniel's comment about professional sport, that is precisely what everybody regrets, is it not? That professionalism has come into sport Amateurism has gone, and the next step is corruption because people make bets on sport, <coughs> and sportsmen are tempted to throw games and things of that sort. In England, I think it goes back to um, the Bodyline controversy in Australia when the English team went out to Australia cricket team, and instead of bowling, they refused to throw in the balls aimlessly and so on, and this was thought to be bad, very bad. So I think um, 
talked about everything else gets corrupted. And this is one of the reasons why, from our point of view, he says it was clean, like the destruction of the separation of powers, which was being talked about um, talked about earlier. <coughs> um, so I think that's probably all I need to say at the moment. Uh, um, that really persuaded me where all this comes back to Rogers' theme uh, is that what did Hayden Bloomley really appreciate with life, particularly now as a comedy, which is still to me such as so described constantly coming to him in 